The What Shapes Us podcast is brought to you by Hume, H-U-M-E, supernatural.com. Hume is a deodorant that you put inside of your pits, mate. 100% non-toxic, all natural, made from a very strong plant that grows in the desert called prickly pear. It is antimicrobial and it's amazing stuff. I always have been into non-toxic deodorants, but most of the time they break down and don't make you feel like you can be confident. And Hume holds up to all of the things that I do when I'm out at play. I enjoy it so much that I actually invested in the company and I'm proud to call myself a partner. And I'm grateful to my partners at Hume Supernatural for deciding to sponsor this new investigative life podcast called What Shapes Us. Hi, my name is Salema Mabena Masakela. I'll say it for you one more time. Salema Mabena Masakela. And you are listening to the What Shapes Us podcast. Now, you might be wondering, who is this person who possesses so many syllables that somehow dance in a rhythm when they are pronounced out loud? Well, I used to go by Sal Masakella. I know, that sounds incredibly boring in comparison to the regal musical nature of Salema Mabena Masakella. And it was because my parents decided that they were going to choose the whitest places on earth for me to live. A few years in New England and then uh, Southern California particularly. And kids were like, what's your name? And I said, Salema Mabena Masakela. And they looked at me confused, like suddenly they didn't know how to get sounds from from their brains to their lips and their tongue and they just looked at me like what did what did but what did he just say bro what did what did you say your name so what and after a couple of days of them with good intentions butchering my name a kid came up to me ran up to me excited and he said hey we got it sal bro your name is Sal. We're going to call you Sal, bro. And thus, Sal Masakella was born. I didn't really have a say in it. Um, and I kind of went with it because when you're a kid, you just, you want to feel accepted, right? And it was cool that all of a sudden, all of these cool surfer skateboarder kids thought that Sal Masakella was cool. So I went with it. And after I got out of high school, I would try to be Salema at various points, but Sal just kind of stuck. And anyway, long story short, I go by Salema Mabena Masakela now, and I am the host of the What Shapes Us podcast. My parents are from South Africa and Haiti. My dad came to the United States when he was 19 years old. 
he was fleeing a system of government in South Africa called apartheid, which was basically like the most ingenious legal system of racism that the world probably has ever seen. When you grew up in the townships, especially during apartheid, you lived to beat the system, so you were always ahead of the police. And he came to America from apartheid straight into the heart of the civil rights movement in the 60s and um, became a musician. People always ask me how I got into music. And I always tell them, I believe I was bewitched by music. I didn't go after it. It came after me from when I was a child. And he fused African music with jazz and many different sounds from around the world and had a really incredible career, not only as a musician, but also as an activist, someone who fought uh, to end apartheid and fought for disenfranchised peoples around the world. That's um, that's my dad. My mom, she came here from Haiti with my grandmother when she was a little girl. Anything people choose to do, I always look and go, if you have a vision of what life your life is and what you want it to be, if he wants to really have that, he'll have it. Uh, She came to New York City when she was about five. My grandmother was um, a pretty incredible woman who ended up being a single mother to three kids, my mom and her two brothers, and um, it was a badass, my grandmother. Her name was Helen. She could cook better than any person who ever touched pots or food, and um, she had an incredible sense of humor, and um, she was a proud immigrant to America, and my mom grew up in New York City and then went to California when she was in her late teens to see what was popping. Now I look back and I go, that's crazy. We drove across country. <laughs> and um, her and my dad met in a boutique on Rodeo Drive. And then they made me, Salema Mabena Masakela. And so it would be interesting that when they made me in Southern California in 1971, that time would loop all the way around and somehow I would end up back in Southern California at 16 and a half years old in Carlsbad, California, where a kid who grew up with uh, hip hop and all of the culture in the world that you can imagine when you're in the the biggest melting pot on earth of New York City, um, would find himself in a place where but there's a bunch of really cool blonde hair, blue-eyed people that speak a different language and dress different than anything you've ever seen and do these sports that you've never seen before that are very cool, specifically surfing and skateboarding as well as um, snowboarding because you could go snowboarding like two hours away in the local Big Bear Mountains. And there was something rhythmic about these sports Something incredibly self-expressive about the way you could just throw yourself into every maneuver. And it came with clothes and music and uh, the ability to curate a a very interesting extended 
friend group wherever you went just by virtue of seeing other people that did the thing. And uh, it, it drew me in. And I fell in love with all three and would end up fast-forwarding into having a career as a broadcaster and commentator of these sports, surfing, skateboarding, and snowboarding, as well as uh, many other emerging sports that would go on to be called extreme. Not that anybody that I know that participates in them has ever thought of themselves as extreme, but the mainstream called them extreme. And um, I got to slide in on that train in the late 90s as a sideline reporter at ESPN for the X Games and then to become the host of the X Games uh, in 2001. And I've enjoyed the most ridiculous television career as a result for the last uh, 21 years. Sal Masekela from NBC Sports. The face of X Games, Winter Games, you know, snowboarding, surfing, skateboarding. Commentator, singer, rapper. Executive producer and host of Vice World of Sports. And now filmmaker, musician. Side note, I also make music. I go by... Alakazam when I make music and a lot of you are probably saying oh my god you already just had gave me like three incredibly difficult names t- to learn in Salema Mabena Masakela and now he and plus this little side discussion of Sal and now he wants to be Alakazam what's happening here well Alakazam is Masakela backwards and when I decided to make music I um was nervous to go by my name at the time, um, which I was going by, Salma Sakela. And so Alakazam felt like a good place to hide as an artist and just see what the music could do. I've gotten to travel around the entirety of the globe, storytelling about uh, these sports as well as people, places, and culture. Um. And it's my favorite thing to do. I love to tell stories. I love to meet new people. I'm curious, um, having gotten to spend a lot of time traveling through the States and the South Pacific and Africa and Australia and and Europe and other places, I have discovered that I am relentlessly curious about human beings and about the totality of the human experience. Thus, the title that was swimming around in me and then finally landed was What Shapes Us? What shapes us? Well, the places where we live, they shape us. The people that surround us as we grow up and uh, that we choose to have as friends, they shape us. Family shapes us. Religion shapes us. Food shapes us. Decisions that are made politically that affect us in various manners, they shape us. Events, things that happen to us, in our life, both good and bad, they 
shape us. All these things shape who we become and who we choose to be. I say choose to be because I really do believe that we have the power to choose um, who we can be. And hopefully, at the end of each episode, maybe there's a something a, a little bit in the a nice, real purity of a thing in the glass that is easily digestible that you can take with you into your life and your discussions with others. And maybe this community that we build with what shapes us can build some connectedness and um, can help people to want to look outside of their circle, the safety of their circle, at other people, other places, um, other ideas that maybe open you up to uh, some other undiscovered parts within yourself. When people tell their stories or, or unearth things, perhaps that they may not have even discovered, that it will wake up something in you. I know that's my goal for myself out of this selfishly. What are you in this, getting to this podcast game for? It's pretty busy and murky. There's a lot of people doing it, Salema. Why are you why would you even do this right now? Selfishly, it's for growth. I think that this platform is going to force me to let it out. Let it all out. Like, yeah. I gotta show up and let it out and get it out of my head and my heart and see whether or not it, I'm crazy if I feel like perhaps I have something to give. (laughs) And if you're still listening and curious about what this um, journey is going to be, then we're going to have some fun. My first guest on the What Shapes Us podcast is my friend Adam J. Foss. I met Mr. Adam J. Foss in Phoenix, Arizona at a conference called Google Zeitgeist. Google Zeitgeist is one of the dopest rooms you could be in. You know, in the Hamilton song that says, I want to be in the room where it happens, Google Zeitgeist is one of those rooms. It's a two and a half day conference where basically like the most powerful people in business, science, politics, activism, social justice, education, um, technology, innovation, forward thinking come together and talk about some of the world's big ideas, um, some of the world's big problems that need solutions, and some of the innovative things that um, are on the cusp of perhaps changing the world for the better in the future. As a result, I've gotten to listen in on some of these incredible um, discussions 
and and been blown away by some some powerful speakers. And Adam J. Foss was one of those speakers. I saw him before he went on stage, and he had long dreadlocks down um, to his ankles. He still does at this time. And I was like, all right, you're different. And I was trying to figure out, like, maybe he's in, maybe he's in the musical. <laughs> I racially profiled Adam Foss. I thought maybe he was uh, in, because they always have an, uh, an artist at the dinner. There's always, like, some incredible, like, what? Like Janelle, no, there was a Janelle Monet one year. Yeah, I think Janelle Monet was there one year. Um, Solange played randomly. No one told me one night. Um, she ended up singing to me, getting off of stage, and and walking to my table and singing to me. I have it on video in case you don't believe me. Check the archives of the Gram. But anyway, I racially profiled Adam J. Foss without knowing him and thought, okay. He's probably here because he's cool. And he wasn't there because he was cool. He was there because, well, he is cool. But he was there because he's an incredibly brilliant man um, who was a former district attorney uh, in, in the Boston area. And this dude basically said being a district attorney is like one of the most powerful positions in our entire judicial system, legal system, and it's being grossly misused. And if we um, maybe take a, a look at how we we treat this position, we could fix a lot of problems that we have um, with our police-to-prison pri- pipeline, etc. And district attorneys basically cannot... District attorneys, prosecutors can advocate for the accused just as, as much as they do um, victims of crime, which probably sounds radical. It does sound radical. But anyway, um, he, he got on stage and just clinicked the room. Everybody was slack-jawed as he just broke down ha- things of like h- how bail works and how, you know, once someone gets charged with a certain type of crime, um, the manner in which they sort of get pulled into the cycle at a young age, and how hard it is, um, if you've made some mistakes in life, to ever have a shot, no matter how um, much you've changed your life on paper, um, how hard it is to become a functioning member of society without these things hanging over your head. He has all of the data um, and, and sort of all of the extension points as to how these things that we take for granted and don't really discuss as regular people actually affect our daily lives. And um, I watched him speak after he got off the stage. I was like, dude, I need to know you. I didn't say I thought you perhaps were in the secret band. Um, and we exchanged information and we kind of kept, kept in touch. He went back to Boston and um, I didn't see him for a long time. And then we were Instagram homies. And long story short, last year, he moved to Los Angeles. And we were like, all right, we got to hang out. And we have been hanging out. And it's turned out that um, Adam J. Foss is, is like a long lost brother of mine. And I'm so grateful to have him in my, in my, in my life, not only as a friend, but as somebody who... Um, I can just turn to when I, I need perspective on 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 how things are working in the world and what the potential of certain things 
um, are and aren't in our uh, legal political discussions, especially as it pertains to uh, social justice. This conversation took place on June 12th in the wake of George Floyd and protests and um, protests being elevated and obviously different sorts of, of, of violent encounters uh, between the police and protesters that were re- resulting in, in all different things across the country and tensions were high. Um, and as, uh, as you'll see in this conversation, we spent time sort of checking in on each other right off the bat, because if you're a black person in these times, especially in the height of what was going on, you just can't help but feel it at a soul level. Um, I hope that you find this, uh, this conversation informative. This was, again, this is the first episode, my first, uh, my first interview that I did uh, in the times of quarantine and lockdown and over Zoom, etc., and uh, different than having a conversation with somebody one on one. And I do feel like I want to have Adam on again. There's a whole other conversation um, that really goes into the core of who he is and why this work is so important to him. Um, just going back to his childhood. For me, it was a powerful conversation, especially in the midst of where we are at now in these bigger discussions around police reform, um, police brutality, um, what the definition of defunding the police looks like, what the sort of the, the like actual path between the police and prosecutors and, and prisons look like. And without further ado, this is What Shapes Us with Adam Foss. I hope you uh, enjoy. Oh, how can I leave out the fact that um, Adam is the founder, one of the founders of the Bail Project, uh, as well as another incredible organization uh, that he is a founder and executive director of called Prosecutor Impact. Um, you can check out both at prosecutorimpact.com as well as well as bailproject.org. This is Adam J. Voss. Who knew that after we met in 2017 at Google Zeitgeist in Arizona? Which was really, 16, really, 16, 16, 2016. Yeah. I still wasn't anything. I was, I was lucky to be near the latrines. And, oh, so you hadn't yeah. even given the Ted talk yet. No, nope. I've seen you in preseason. And that's when I was like, this dude, I need to know this brother because he's, he's a force. We were in one of those situations where you're in a room of some of the most powerful people on the planet in business in marketing in activism and science, etc. But we were also two of maybe four black people in the midst of five hundred people for three or four days who who wield and hold this incredible amount of capital power. I mean, a, a force of human beings. 
Yeah, and and you know, um, the other two black people that were there were on the panel with me. Like, <laughs> um, I, I this is what I often talk about is um, just the paucity of diversity in these spaces and challenging the 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 audiences in those spaces to ask themselves if they believe that we are we are just the most exceptional of ourselves or like is something else going on yeah you know in the midst of everything that's been going on that's a that's something that's been coming up i i've been listening to people in in so many different spaces where they are one of the only like a bunch of the onlys are now speaking up about their landscapes about their their little sub cultures within the ethos um mountain bikers crossfitters um so many different cycling and it's the same thing it's it, this it's this this idea of like why is it that we can only be accepted if we are the greatest version of of blackness why it, why is only the greatest version or your perceived idea your perceived idea of the greatest version of blackness accepted into the room um i i have to imagine it has something to do with comfort and people i know that people um because of the way that i was maybe brought up or or um or the way that i appear or the job that I have or the things that I do that people are like, Oh, I feel safer around you than expanding their universe beyond the person that comes to them. So like I played collegiate rugby and you know, maybe in my entire time, there was one other brother on my team. I saw maybe like four or five others throughout the time that I played. Um, and that <laughs> I wasn't exceptionally good. I'm sure that there were other brothers uh, elsewhere that would have dominated. In fact, I, I can turn on the television and watch it happening around the world, but this country, um, you know, closed a lot of doors for people. Mm. Yeah, that, that was one of the things that we bonded on. I remember when you tell me that you played collegiate rug- rugby, and I was like, yeah, I'm a surfer and a snowboarder, and we both just looked at each other like... <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, there's, there's definitely something here. Too good. When I called you... Two and a half weeks ago, George Floyd hadn't taken place yet. Can you believe, like, that was two and a half weeks ago that we talked. Right. And we were in a global pandemic. Right. And things already felt elevated if you were a black person. We, we, we talked extensively about Ahmaud Arbery, the, the situation in Central Park had just taken place. And because of COVID and this undivided attention of people being able to focus, the conversation was doing more than bubbling. And I had been wanting to talk to you for a while since you moved to California and we realized that we had mutual friends. And I just was like, okay, I'm reaching out to him, send him a DM. We need to talk. And it was such a, it was such a, it was a really powerful conversation for me because it was it was you saying all the same things that I was feeling in the moment and that all black people feel when these things start to happen, but we hadn't even peaked yet. Like it was the, the intro. We hadn't even gotten into the verse of the song yet. 
what the world saw with George Floyd and what has taken place since is just is dizzying. Yeah, it's it's um, you know even reflecting on on sort of what had happened up until that point, and then you layer on top of that uh, the racial disparities that were coming out in terms of COVID morbidity, COVID infection. You talk about the the healthcare professionals who are on the front lines of this and who they are. You talk about the vulnerable populations in the communities and the lack of infrastructure. You talk about the service industry and this conversation that we're we're in in California, where it's like we're going to open everything up, but who do you think are the people who are again standing on the front lines while we get to go back to to sitting outside and eating food? Um, those are black and brown, predominantly service workers who are are in those spaces. And so that was like the energy that we had during that call was, was built on that. And then all of a sudden this match got lit and thrown on top of it. And a lot of people are talking about this being a moment and it's a different moment. And, uh, for some reason it feels different. I'm, um, I'm trying to remain cautiously optimistic, but you know, I, I also kind of, um, I feel sort of like the attention span of the teenagers that America is are uh, waning already, and I, I wonder how that's like. How do you feel? How are you feeling right now? And when you say teenagers, you're talking about America being a teenager. Yes, we don't have uh, generations and different civilizations that have like come and gone on this land that we occupy that we call the United States. Like it's the same name on the building since we moved here. And it's and like, you know, like there are only been a few rounds of tenants. And so we are teenagers in terms of our um, evolutionary cycle of civilization. And, and as uh, you know, like we are we are still a fickle, uh, undefined group of people. You're kind. I usually say toddler. But um, yeah, I get in some respects, we're a teenager. Um, but you asked me how I feel. I got one of those calls today, one of those check ins from a very well-meaning white friend. And she said, how are you? I said, here's where my optimism is. I feel like I fell off the back of a ship in the middle of the night. I treaded water all night, didn't get eaten by the sharks, but I felt their presence. It's daytime now, and I can't see land as far as the eye can see in any direction. But... There's a small dinghy within my grasp. I'm swimming to it, and it looks like it might be stable. But I'm not sure yet. That's how I feel. You, you can tell that you are a surfer because, like, the, pre the premise was terrifying to me. I was already, like, giving up. <laughs> so, um, no, I hear you. I hear you. Um, a lot of what I'm feeling, I feel something like it's there. It's there. It is very fragile, but I could, if I swim with all of my might and I maintain my head above this water, I can, I can perhaps get there. And then maybe um, a ship will show up and, and then maybe a ship will show up. Like, right. That's the, that's the next part. Like there's a whole other part of the journey. I welcome sort of like the clumsy and awkward, uh, first steps that people are taking. I actually, I actually welcome it. Like, we do, we do a great job in this country of um, uh, in our criminal justice system and the way that we are raised and actually doing 
everything we can to um, avoid or or shame people into accountability. And so, like, I appreciate um, people reaching out and all those things and working them through sort of like the the boundaries of it. And one of the things is like when people reach out and they're like, "Are you okay?" I'm like, "I'm fine." Are you okay? Like, this is a you thing. You have to, you, if you are not uncomfortable, if you are not like suffering and struggling through this deep, uh, like de-radicalization and unconditioning, then like, I, I know that you're not ready. If you if you still view this as an issue where like I am suffering and I appreciate it because it is hard out here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, deny and give gratitude for people who see that like, this is traumatic and harmful. But I also like if people aren't aren't struggling beyond like this is this is optically bad. It's like no no no. You need to feel as if you have run a triathlon because really that's the kind of work that has to be put into doing this unpacking deconditioning. Yeah, and then with that, there is immense optimism because I've never seen people such a, a large trove of people who are not black not just be like I feel bad, but I want to do the homework. I'd, I'd like to study up on all the courses that I missed. I'd like to masterclass this. And then I'd like to put what I learned into action and incorporate this into my lifestyle. I, there are so many people I know that run brands who have done the homework over the last two weeks and then are sending me the manifestos of like, this is what we are implementing into the culture of our company. Would you mind taking a look and giving me your perspective as opposed to, hey, I'm freaking out. What do we do? And these, they're from people and from spaces where I just never would have expected. And the amount of gratitude and the fact that they want to continue the conversation. Um, it really, really, really gives me hope. And, and also, like, I don't know, did you watch Chappelle yet? <laughs> Whew. <laughs> I mean, yeah, straight fire. Just he just walked up there with a flamethrower strapped to his back and said, you know, these things don't last very long. So I'm just going to put it on blast until it runs out. And at 27 minutes, he was like, peace, I'm out. But one of the most powerful things that that um, that he said in, in 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 hope and positivity I just love the way he gave credit to the youth and to see the manner in which these kids have been out there, organized, putting themselves in every single level of harm's way, because harm's way is not limited to just potential engagement with law enforcement that it has a bad outcome. Like Harm's way is, there's so many layers to what that looks like, especially during this time. And, and being like, honor them. Don't ask for, for, for my voice um, because it's, I'm, at this point, it's just commentary. And by the way, I've been giving you this commentary for 20 plus years. Yeah. You know, these, these, these kids are out here in the street and they are doing it and they're relentless and they're clearly not um, picking up their foot off of this. And, and, and the fact that when, when you look out and even in the, in the few protests that I've been to, I just see all these different faces and I'm like, and they're not just there because it's like Coachella cool. You know, they're there with like intention. Anguish. Yeah. Yes. And, like, and feeling and empathy. 
which has been devoid of the, the em- empathy has been devoid of the space and what we've been in from a political spectrum in the last f- four years of this, the empire, like we're on some, like on a weird Star Wars um, prequel, uh, is apathy almost being the new empathy. Like you don't need to care. You're the shit. There's no need for you to care or to have feeling for anybody who is not you. You're good. Enjoy what is yours. They're not, this isn't theirs. They're occupiers. And you see how sort of drunk, even though people have the same circumstances of of poverty and challenges with their health, I mean, the long list of family dynamics that everyone else does, those people feeling like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is, this is ours. They're right. Empathy suddenly being like, nah, I'm going to flex my power. That's, that's, that's where the, that's where the hope vibe is for me. Yep. Yeah. And, and it's hopeful for me as well, for all the reasons that you've stated, um, cannot give enough credit to the young people who, uh, to your point, are putting themselves at risk in all of the ways, including how difficult it is to understand the way that maybe we did when we were young people, that there is a, there is a path for you that you have to walk if you don't want doors closed in your face that wouldn't be closed for people otherwise. And so being exposed to arrest or to uh, you know an, a, a school disciplinary action or to missing hours at work or those things, um, they are putting themselves at risk uh, against all of, all of the structures, not just policing by being out there. Um, but they're also out there um, with sort of like that generational check that they get all the time, which is like, pull your pants off, stop shouting, this isn't working. And what I want all of us adults to say, uh, former presidents, um, you know, uh, civil rights leaders of past time is like, look at everything that has happened in the last two weeks. The NFL apologize. I'm not giving it. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not commenting on the quality or meaning of it. I'm saying that the action was taken that uh, has 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 not happened. NASCAR, uh, at risk to their bottom line, said no more Confederate flags on your cars. Cities are defunding their police departments. Again, not, not commenting for a moment on the quality or the intent behind the action, but the fact that it has happened in ways that have never happened before, we should be turning around and saying to these kids, you crack the coat. Let's yeah. learn from you and let's build on this. Yes, all of that. When I saw the Boston Red Sox on Instagram today, they were, I, and this speaks to you because you grew up. You this, you grew up in Boston. I used to live in Attleboro, Massachusetts, so I know the texture of of you know every, every that's real Boston, bro. Like yeah, Attleboro is reflective of of what the Boston Red Sox uh, have yes. represented. And what people also don't realize is like the texture and tone and flavor of racism across America is like it's different kind of flavors. Like the New England one is real. Like unabashed, sinister, and to the point where you're almost grateful for it because they don't they, and that's such a weird thing to say, but at least it's like, all right, I know what I'm dealing with, as opposed to that like 
liberal, below the surface, clap for you in the streets, but never invite you to your house. Uh, up Tribeca, you know, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco vibe that you get, you know, who always gets a pass because they vote Democrat. But that's another conversation. But to see the manner <laughs> in which, like, when I saw the Red Sox were like, hey, it's a wrap. You're not calling, you're not dropping M-bombs on, on people anymore. We're not, we, we take ownership that we've allowed this behavior to happen. I was like, what's happening here? You know, NASCAR banning the Confederate flag. By the way, no lie, I ordered my Bubba Wallace t-shirt. I got a Bubba Wallace t-shirt coming. It's loud. It's got a crazy NASCAR thing on it and a flag. And I can't wait to wear that shit in the streets and be like, we got you, my guy. And to also tune in on, on a Sunday and have some interest. Convert. That's it. Like, hey, also, people... If you do this thing, if you take the uncomfortable step, there is beauty on the other side. It is not going to be as bad as you think it is to ask the wrong question or to say the wrong thing in the, in the, in the path towards like repair. Because on the other side, what will happen? I guarantee you after like this isn't um, what, I, what, I, what I cringe a little bit at happening is sort of like the reactionary and impulsive regardless of like the intent, the people who have good intent impulsively responding in ways that like, if I was a restorative justice facilitator, I might like handle a little bit differently, but either way on the other side of that, you will convert. And your example is a perfect one. NASCAR. I guarantee you will have black fans next year that they never could have dreamed of. Um, and, and, and I'm thinking about all these other institutions and just encouraging them and individuals like, Black lives in your life will benefit you. Yes. And that's what that's the I I my my brother took a beautiful picture from my my younger brother who took off of work for eight days and he works in the cannabis space and he's like, put everything on hold. I'm in these streets. And he called me every day with these incredible stories of the energy and feeling and you know, talking about the the full realization of like Whew, the message is not monolithic. There's agendas, etc. But overall, you know, it just felt so good. But he took a picture looking backwards with a, a bunch of kids with fists in the air. And it was every single, it almost looked too staged. It almost looked like one of those Benetton ads, but it was, yes. it was real. And I, I, I posted something and I was like, who in their right mind could be afraid of what's on the other side of this energy. I always say that I, I grew up with a very strange privilege in the way that I grew up in New York City because I grew up, before I moved to New England, I, I grew up in New York. I lived in Staten Island. I went to school with Method Man, Clifford Smith, Wu-Tang Forever. If you look at all of my school pictures from kindergarten all the way through eighth grade, it's Puerto Rican, it's Dominican, it's Italian, it's Eastern Europeans. I went to, to, to school with kids whose parents had fled uh, the Czech conflict. It's Russian kids, it's Polish kids, it's immigrants from Africa, it's Dominicans, it's Puerto Ricans, it's Black Americans descendant 
from the South. It's myself, who's a first-generation American of Haitian and South African descent. Those are parents. One, one, my, my mother emigrated. My, my father fled apartheid. And the benefit that we had as kids going to school together and being kept pretty much in the same classes through that whole entire time, as we knew everybody's music, everybody's food, all the weird, funny stuff about each other's cultures. Oh, I left out the Caribbean. Jamaicans are like, you better shout us out. Um, why wouldn't you want that in your life? Why wouldn't you want to be curious and learn about the beauty of other people's shit as well as like the fact that like within every group are some assholes? Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've been struggling with this question all week. It's like, uh, what is the worst thing that can happen if you're wrong? Like out here just saying that you are not racist. Like what is the worst thing that can happen if you're wrong? Um, none of us out here are agreeing with you. So like you are just, you are just telling us things that we don't already know. I'm ready to receive you as someone who like when I hear, when I hear people saying I'm not racist or, or that person's a racist, it's like obviously there's been a deep moral judgment placed on the word and many times that is that is um perhaps warranted but what i what i want to be really careful about is like understanding that racism um if if we try to deal with racism as if it's an an only the the moral failings of an individual person and that other people somehow have escaped those moral failings because they're better than we're going to be swimming in this same sort of like morass that you're talking about which is what i grew up in which is just like nobody ever said the n-word nobody ever nobody there were no like lynchings in my town um you know like uh there was there are no police shootings uh around me and and so it was very easy for my community i I grew up in a homogeneously white community sort of like lower middle class um now sort of like in the center of the heroin epidemic in massachusetts um and so I was lulled into this belief that the way that I was being treated was non-racist. And what I have lear- obviously learned since leaving that place and, and uh, traveling the world and, and studying what I've studied was that, no, it was just like a, a, in some ways more of a sinister racism because like I was racist on myself. I, was, I, I viewed the way that I was showing up in the world uh, through the lens of the sort of like glasses that I got put on me. Um, I viewed other black people and uh, um, uh, sort of like respect myself through those lenses. And so like I've had to do a ton of work. And on the other side, I'm just like, oh, this is dope. Like this feels so good. Not, not that I'm saying that I'm on the other side whatsoever, but at least taking that first moment of acknowledgement and like, oh, I feel bad about saying it, but realizing that the other side, there is only beauty. There's only growth. Um, and, and that if we can start to have the conversation around this word is more of a, um, a conditioning, a learning that we have because of what is happening to us when we're children and understand that, that in the same way that trauma affects us and language affects us, um, if we can start to think on it in that way, then I, I, I share your, your optimism for our future. Mm. What do you think of, of, of 
because racism to me is just it's just like fear it's like a like a a big mac version of 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 fear no no offense mcdonald's um but it's you know it's the supersized juiced up fear tastes really good makes you feel like you just ah right feel some power but i i cannot believe in my heart that those people don't wrestle with incredible darkness and pain um based in how they feel it can't be a safe feeling there's just there's just no way do you think that there's a manner in which people can people who who lean so hard on that side and don't want to let go could understand that this when you say systemic racism that they actually are getting played too um if i did then um I would not be able to explain why we are still here because this has been playing out since Bacon's Rebellion. Like the reason that we refer to each other as black and white in this country and have and the, where these racial divides started was like when everybody got here, there was a small group of people that held on to all the wealth and they used that power to, to centralize that wealth and, and buy and trade with each other um, in a way that would, would maximize their wealth so that this little tiny fraction of the population would run everything, politics, education, um, entertain, all the things. Commerce. Commerce. And they, and they only grew, they were only able to grow and maintain that wealth on exploiting people who did not have the privilege to be the heir of something or the creator of something, all the things. And so when, when uh, to do that at first, it was just like enslavement. And it, was, and it was African slavery and then indentured servitudes of the poor whites. And once they started seeing that the uh, slaves and the poor whites who were working side by side in the field were just like, wait a minute, uh, there's more of us than there are of them. Let's go get, what, get what's ours. You see uh, slowly but surely the establishment being like, let's just make these people feel a little bit more important. We'll say the right things to them. We will give them the bare minimum, 30 acre, 40 acres and a mule. We'll give them the bare minimum to get over that, that hump just so that they're just like a little bit better than them and gen- then just let human stuff happen. Uh, we'll just let the chemicals take over after that because we, we, are, at, we are at the base uh, level. We are, hum- we are primates. And, it's just, and it is about just like that feeling. And they squash, they squash Bacon's Rebellion they uh, they pitted poor whites against enslaved blacks, and then eventually sharecropping blacks. And when you look around this country today, and you see what is happening, that we are out here fighting each other and screaming each other's faces at these rallies, and you look around at who's not saying anything, and it is that small fraction of people who have all of the wealth in this country, and they're sitting in their houses or wherever, and we're like, we are literally like attacking each other for a little tiny fraction and in my estimation that they look at you the same way they look at me don't get it twisted the reason that they're under that spell is just the words that are coming out of the mouth of the president uh he is a lot of things but um the people on his team are like know how to speak to them they stay so on brand like you want to talk about like marketing school master class like never deviate never break 
stay on brand. If you keep the message up, then they'll forget whatever else that might have happened. You know, there's someone someone sent me a note today where they were talking about um, how necessary it every it is for everybody to read 1984 specifically for that that idea of uh, you know being told that what you what you're seeing is, isn't actually taking place is, is is not a real thing um it's i i i'm failing it's it's hard for me to wrap my head around um and and like i engage with people on on social media for this reason because i'm like i'm always interested just to know i i try to approach people with like uh, a lens of just like i i would love to know why you are so ardent in this position mm. and um i think that it is easy to pit two groups of people who are marginal but alike in lots of ways against each other when i as a low-income person living in rural america or a low middle class person living in america gets the fragility of sort of like being above uh, abject poverty that that is being stoked and it, and it is that fragility subconsciously that i think folks prey upon to be like they're going to take your schools. They're going to take your kids. If I'm a, a wealthy person living out here in Santa Barbara, there is no amount that you can tell me that like black or brown people are going to take away my kids' education or my kids' jobs because we don't ever have to. I don't ever have to worry about that. What I do have to worry about is like when there's that fragile line between what I have and what others don't. Mm. And that's where it gets weird. I'm hoping that when when I look behind you at all those those um those post-its uh, for your book. I, I imagine these are some of the subjects you will be trafficking in. Uh, yes, I, I, it is. Uh, the title of the book is The Bigger Win because I fundamentally believe that it, 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 it sources from um, my days as a prosecutor and the metric of success and, and perhaps the paradigm metric of success in the DA's office is um, convicting uh, like a real bad person, like a murder trial or or you know a child molester or something like that and that's like that's the win that we are conditioned to chase from the day that we get into an office not not directly but everything that we celebrate what you see on tv right the win is that right um it's putting some the idea of like we're going to put that person away yes and society being conditioned almost like a like a like a dog bell or whistle to be like yay we're safer again because that thing happened and that human being's life is a way. Yes. And trying to make the point that if we do just do this like radically uncomfortable thing, which is uh, suggest that maybe there are other better ways to do it. Uh, because really the only reason we do it's, we don't do it because the evidence is that that is true. Like we can win 50 murder trials, but we still have the biggest biggest uh incarcerated population in the country we still have lots and lots of victims that are not getting served at all they're afraid to pick up the phone we have the 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 fomenting of of violence in our streets we have uh, a police force that has lost almost all credibility particularly in the neighborhoods where they are quote unquote um perceived to be needed the most um and so we're not doing it because it's effective we're doing it because it was built hundreds of years ago by white men in wigs 
who were like, this is, this is how we're going to do it. And then we just started celebrating it. And we never once like visited the tradition of the pomp and circumstance because we didn't want to dis- disrespect the honor of those people. And the, and the only reason that we, we are okay with that, that we continue to like do something that is so ineffective and expensive in lots of places harmful is because of who it is harming. We, we wouldn't give a rat's ass about it. I, I don't want to say that because education works a lot in this way. And this does affect a lot more people than just uh, poor people, but it disproportionately affects us where education was built hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And we still walk into classrooms around here and it's still 30 kids sitting in, a, in rows, looking at the front, getting graded on standardized tests uh, from, from 8 a.m. until 3 p.m. Uh, and then the homework is like, like, what? How do we antiquated as fuck? Like liter- literally the horse-drawn carriage uh, like, is, is still in effect when you think about what our education system looks like. And so both our education system and our criminal justice system and we're working on our public health system, but that's got a long way to go. Uh, all of these people with egalitarian views come to this job, um, and we can editorialize that all day, but like, let's for a moment allow ourselves to believe that like, the people who go in go in with good intent, they get into the structure, they get conditioned to chase these wins, and they, they end up becoming people like, that we don't, what happened to you? Why are you hiding evidence? You're gonna send a person to a prison for life, and not only that, but you are going to lie to this victim? Like, you, what happened to you? And so the bigger win for me is, let's just like try something else, like teach, treating people when they come into the justice system on both sides of the equation with empathy and dignity and humanity, ask them what they want, serve those needs, get real accountability, and watch what happens because I can guarantee you from uh, experience um, and evidence and all of the things that there's something much greater than winning trials or getting somebody canceled from the internet or somebody getting voted out of election or getting someone shamed. There's something much greater on the other side. You tell an incredible story in your TED Talk um, when you're an intern in in the DA's uh, district attorney's office in, in Boston and you have a young man who is arrested and he's working a part-time job. His intention is to go to college, doesn't have the means. And so he makes some unwise decisions, steals 30 laptops, sells them on the internet, gets caught and finds himself with 30 felony charges. 30 felony charges that would just change the complete outcome whatever those dreams were before you made the shitty decision it's a wrap now these 30 laptops are who you are and they will be attached to you for the rest of your existence we actually are going to strap this like a cinder block to your leg mm-hmm. and in that position you made a, a very powerful disruptive choice for which the outcome you you never could have even begun to script what that outcome is, but it literally is everything you just said. I'll, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, you know, like um, I I tell this tell the story of, of Christopher and the decision that I made, and that's really all that I did was make like a couple of decisions, and then Christopher 
and the community-based organizations that he worked with, his school, um, the people that we connected him to in his life, did the rest. And after that, uh, I lost track of him, which is a great thing in the criminal justice system. We don't want to see people again. Um, I was at like a bougie black uh, professionals gathering in the city and like a creep, I was, I was like in the back just trying to eat because um, I was a, you know, like I was a government employee and I see Christopher standing there in like a nice suit. This is six he, years later. Six years later. Um, he is now a grown man, um, um, you know, uh, standing there in a suit all filled out. And the, I walk up and I see his name tag. And not only did he say Christopher, affirming that it was this person that I knew, but it was like senior VP at Santander Bank. <laughs> and it was like, let alone all the things that he accomplished between uh, when I saw him and, and being uh, this person, this, this, uh, this role, um, banking is, is out of your forecast if you are convicted of a, th- a felony, particularly a, f- a theft felony. College, for the most part, is, is out if you were convicted of, of you know, several felonies, let alone theft felonies. Um, and so it was, it was an amazing point to be like uh, a seed that I had planted six years earlier grew into this amazing tree that like I had some part in, 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 in fostering. But this young man just grew into his own person and now is like he's engaging with, with, with men that I consider mentors and peers. And again, it's just like another, that's the dopamine hit of that and the fact that I'm still talking about that as opposed to sitting here and talking about the one dude that I like smoked in a trial after I gave this sizzling closing argument is, is proof positive. Like this is the drug. It is not, uh, you know, uh, getting in front of the news cameras and saying, yeah, that uh, he's going to go to jail for 50 going years. home and saying, honey, put another one away for 15 to 20 years. Make me my drink. And that's, and that's not just because I, I uh, looked like most of the people that were coming through the system. It is because I'm a human being. And, and so there is this level of like implicit bias and racism in our system we have to deal with. But there's also this like sinister thing that we do, um, you know, harkening back to the word you used earlier, where we dehumanize other people in the name of proving our point. And, and, and so like it is, uh, it, it's, a, it's a socializing thing that we do, but that's what you're seeing right now. You're no longer a prosecutor, but you and now you are an advocate for change um, at a national level. We are having this conversation. We're having conversations now, like in in spaces and forums where we never would before about real possibility and systemic change. Obviously, people are talking about either defunding, uh, demilitarizing, um, changing the various, you know, whatever titles you want, big, impactful changes to the manner in which police forces function uh, at an economic level, you know, who, what, what officers even look like from a mental health standpoint, from, from, a, from, from a social work standpoint to help not just put people in jail, but get actual changes that can, in, in the way that you just talked about, Christopher, um, and it's it's exciting because literally three weeks ago, people would have called you a communist or socialist or whatever it is for having these conversations. But 
people going out in these kids for the most part and society going out in the streets and saying, you're not going to shut us up until now people are like, okay, we want to do some things. Like you said, optimistic. Also, we need to see what the long game is. One of the things that drew me to you when, when you spoke was I never understood the power in any way, shape or form that a district attorney had. I never understood their relationship with the police. You just think about the police and then this person goes to trial and that's it. But a district attorney, your local district attorney is kind of the most powerful person in the game. Contextualize what that means and and, and how that could really have a, 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 a massive impact on, on both sides, from the prison population to the way we police. Um, thank you for the, for the question. The, the, um, the police are, are uh, arguably the most powerful in that they begin the interaction. They begin sort of like that cascade into the criminal justice system. Um, obviously, that word power uh, is also exemplified by the money and unionization and weaponry behind them. And so like they have uh, arguably the most amount of power, but that power is short and transactional. It is, I arrest you or I don't, I kill you or I don't. Um, uh, and after that, um, people don't get into the criminal justice system unless a prosecutor says, yeah, this is good. This is good to go. Um, there are all sorts of like different laws and local regulations about being held on bail before a prosecutor sees your case. And that is all true and important and, and uh, should be centralized and regulated and all, and all those things. And, and I don't want to disregard all of those truths, but there is one person who decides whether the, the entire weight of the criminal justice system comes down on you or not. And that is a prosecutor. And so if you take it back to Christopher's case, um, I easily could have made the other decision to charge Christopher with 30 felonies. And in that moment, deciding that on, on a relatively minor case, this obviously ratchets up as you talk about cases that are more serious. Um, I have now dictated how the rest of this case is going to go because the exposure that this young man now has to the criminal justice system is so great. And that is in my discretion as the prosecutor that the roll of the dice, the bargain, or, or, the, or the gamble that you will, are willing to take on the criminal justice system is uh, wildly different. Uh, and so if I'm facing 30 felonies, and that means 60 years in prison, I'm much more likely to plead guilty to that case. Uh, I'm much more likely to be held on bail and therefore be held for pretrial, in pretrial detention for that case. Be in the system. Be in the system. Um, I'm much more likely to have a criminal record that is four pages as opposed to zero. Uh, and, and so all of these decisions, both acute, but also, uh, sort of, uh, indirect and tangential are in the province, the sole province of the prosecutor. And that person, when you have that amount of power and discretion and responsibility, you would expect that person to have some sort of like special training, like some amount of like deep understanding of who this person is before we hand them the, the ability to make that radical of a decision and impact on people's lives. But the sad reality is um, I got the same 84 credit hours going to law school that like judge Judy got. Um, I, I, I was in no um, different position than 
the guy who, who studied tax attorney uh, to be a tax attorney, or the woman who decided to go to the corporate side, or or um, you know the 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 Asian man in my class who um, went to be an intellectual property attorney. We all got the same credits, and then I was allowed to go in uh, to the job and learn on the job, and that is okay when you're learning a trade, but when you're decisions are irreparably harming or irreparably saving the lives of marginalized people, then, then we cannot allow it ever, particularly for a, a profession where you're licensed, that you can ever learn how to do this job on the, uh, how to learn to do this job on the job. Well, I think that's incredible work um, that you're doing. Um, do you feel bolstered at all? In this situation, I mean, listen. Everyone's looking for for ways to 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 um, righteously come up, right? For their movements to righteously come up in the midst of this attention span and this momentum. Is this an opportunity for, to capitalize and, and move the ball further down the field in this movement within the prosecuting community? Uh, absolutely, and I and I, I only I only know it because of. Uh, the outreach that we've gotten from the community in the last um, few years, but really ratcheted up in these last few weeks where people are coming to that place where they're just like, this is, this is killing me. Like I feel unwell because I have to go to this job. I, I have been lied to. I have been disinvested in. And it's, and I understand for a lot of people, it's hard to have empathy and sympathy for prosecutors because of what we like, what we understand them to be. But uh, for the most part, the people who are very young lawyers who are coming out of law school, uh, being told in law school that if you just follow this playbook and you do what you're told when you get there, you'll be a successful attorney, uh, has only gotten us to this place. And, that, and you can remove, you can transpose that sort of like trajectory on many of the things that we're talking about. And that's what you're seeing is people waking up to a reality that like, actually, this, this has nothing to do with being a bad person. This is me having a better understanding of, of the person and the, and the, and the uh, environment that I've grown up in. I'm, I'm rejecting that for the pursuit of something greater. It can't get worse. It cannot get worse. And so like, at least allow me to try this new thing that feels like accountability and repair. And it feels like when you talk about it through that lens, you, it's the same sort of scenario within policing and law enforcement where plenty of these kids young men and women that that take the job have real intention to be communal and and make a difference positively get caught up in in this system of what that identity looks like and in both cases it feels like definitively becomes an us versus them like you take this job you taking this job and this oath makes you no longer a member of the community and so any empathy that you might have um, or, or negates your ability to, to criticize your, your fellow peer on your team, like you are on this team first and a human second. And it feels like that, like it feels like there's a possibility to break that. And, but what's on the, what could be on the other side of that, of that, that, that us versus them is, it's infinite, but it's super fear bound, and which is why people try to hold on to it um, at, at any cost. Yeah. So what I'm hoping on the other side of it is um, 
both ways to hold people accountable uh, to all of these promises that are coming from lots of different feelings that they're having. One of, one of which is just like, I get it now. I have to be different. But lots of them are just shame and guilt and fear and anxiety and some of the other stuff we talked about. But holding them accountable. But also like we're simple, we're simple machines. We, we follow our incentives. And so for, for us um, as a community, as uh, in, in, uh, corporations, as institutions, to look at your metrics and the way that you measure success in your businesses and in your companies. Instead of measuring um, you know, how many trials did we win this year and, and, and all the bad guys we locked up, like, why don't we ask victims, all of the victims that call, call the police, like, how are we doing? And when we see those numbers going up, not because uh, only the victims who said, I want you to lock this person up forever are, are happy, but because the victims who are just like, listen, I just wanted you to get this person out of my house. We'll, we'll handle the rest, like honoring what, what all survivors want or even, even like level, level up from that. If we're asking people, even people who are going to, going to, to, um, to if there is a, a universe where there's still jail and prisons, if they're, if they're needing to be detained or removed from the community, asking them, how do you feel about being here? And reaching a level of people being being saying like I understand that I needed to be removed from my environment to do some healing work, but I'm ready to go back out there. That's that is like the beautiful future that awaits for us. But we are so caught up and holding on to um, this tradition, this legacy, all of these ideas um, that we are missing out on it, and we're killing ourselves in the meantime. If there are people who are listening, uh, watching this conversation right now that are hearing a lot of this information for the first time and probably asking themselves, well, what can I do? How does this apply to me? Do What is my power, if any, in this scenario as a citizen? Um, so there's the like starter pack, which is donate and vote and protest and do all of the things to show solidarity and support. Um, but what f- folks um, need to do to make actual and sustainable change is realize that racism uh, is not an opt-in or an opt-out uh, when you are an adult. Um, we've, we've gotten to the place where we do all of this um, assuaging ourselves by telling us that our kids are virtuous and that if we just treat our children well, they'll figure this stuff out. But we change nothing else about their environment. They're flooded with the same images in the media. They're flooded with the same images in children's books. We continue to do the thing where we disrespect them by acting like they cannot process the information on their own or that will somehow harm them. And in fact, we are harming them by doing that very thing because we are putting a bunch of people out here in the world that don't know how to have the conversations that we're looking for. We put a bunch of people out in the world who have been lied to and it's harming them and it creates people that have lots of manifestations of that trauma. Turn inwards, talk to your young people, socialize these concepts early, don't turn them away from the bad parts. Um, Obviously, like... I'm not asking you to show them the George Floyd video or, or uh, graphic images of native slaughter or graphic in- images of slavery, but please, please stop talking about George Washington and just the cherry tree. Yeah. Stop talking about Benjamin Franklin and just electricity. Stop talking about Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence. Tell the whole story 
both hold and hold both truths to be okay because it is a product of socialization and systems and structures and that that will help young people um not grow up with this language that we have created which is racism i had a friend sit down at my behest with his family and watch ava duvernay's 13th call me up in tears this is a man in his early 40s he just was like how do i not know any of this and one of the things that he said to me he said I wasn't listening to some talking heads give me a bunch of opinions from any of the news channels or punditry. Like, I just got read a long list of unchallengeable receipts of American history and how they all connect in the line to where we are today. And he just said, I'm nauseous, but I'm going to continue to do the work massive impact on his family and he's one of those people for whom like when he goes in the netflix queue usually and sees anything that's black or not white just like nah i want to laugh like i've been raised to not have to be concerned or have be disrupted from my god-given right to be entertained as much as possible why do i need to see that and it blew his mind, and he was just like, thank you. I'm like, I didn't do anything. You press play, and you sat your family around, and now you're going to have these conversations. And I've been telling a lot, a lot of people, I'm like, making this a lifestyle is, requires work. It's like you just said that I'm going to go to the gym, but we all know that when you say, ah, you get all high on yourself, like, I'm going to the gym, that might last a, a week, might last a month. And then you look at that shitty food that you enjoyed eating and just chilling. And it's real easy to start telling stories about how you used to work out. But if you make fitness a lifestyle, if you make eating healthy a lifestyle, it assimilates in the same manner that you need to, to sleep and breathe. And that's what I think people are realizing is being asked of them. It's like, this is, this is, this, then what I keep trying to, to say to people with compassion is like, you're making a new life choice and it's going to take time. So don't put pressure on yourself that you need to do all of the homework tomorrow, that you know, need to know all of the things. This is work that you do for the rest of your life. And if you make that choice, then yeah, six months from now, a year from now, you might feel a different sort of way. And all of a sudden, the kaleidoscope that you're looking through the world at is like, oh, this place is so much more than anyone ever told us. I love that you just used the analogy because that's what I, you know, it's sort of like make it more palatable to people. And it's, a, it's I understand that it sucks that we still have to make it more palatable to people. Um, but I talk about it in the terms of exercise. And um, I say that, you know, like, I'll use you as an example, my brother. I see you out there on <laughs> IG sweating uh, and like you're objectively in discomfort. But then I just see this like Zen. And that is a commitment that you've made to your body your entire life. And I guarantee you that, that, that if you are not doing that, you feel a certain way. 
And like, as someone who tries to go to the gym all the time and fails, but there was a period of time where it was just like, I could not not go to the gym. Yeah. That's like getting over that uh, feeling of discomfort is only going to lead to like, this is saturating and nurturing my body in a way that I cannot live without it. And when you reach that level of beauty, um, we, we haven't even, as a, again, as a teenaged um, society in, a, in, a, in an adolescent civilization species, uh, we have yet to discover the beauty on the other side of this like uh, small but devastating blemish yeah. on our uh, history. Putting yourself consistently in uncomfortable positions can yield the greatest outcomes of your life in every single aspect. You know, shooting your shot with that person who seems to be like they could potentially be the one. You know, my, Kelly Slater, the, the, the greatest surfer of all time, says if you want to catch the best wave of your life, you need to be scared and be in the part of the wave that can kill you. You take off there, and if you enter there, that's where that's when the magic happens. But you have to be prepared for the outcomes on the other side. You have to do the work. And th- that's the thing. I think it's the greatest thing about our society for a long time that we could brag about that made like people be like, this is the best country in the world, is that you could just be chill and as comfortable as fuck as much as you want, you could create a bubble of, comf- of of being comfortable even when shit is seemed like it was at its worst. And then the universe was like, let me show y'all what worse can feel like and see if, if you have the ability to go and hide. And it's just like, I've, I've used this analogy too much, but it really, it just, the black light, like nothing hides under the black light. And that's what makes this so opportune. You came, you, you come from a family of law enforcement. Um, yes. I believe police um, and, and various aspects of law enforcement growing up. What is it about you as a person do you think that caused you to come into, the, into that moment where you're like, no, I, I, if I'm going to do this, it has to be from a place from compassion and empathy and based in who I am as opposed to what I do. Yeah, um, it was just uh, a constellation of unforeseen but short, like meaningful events. And that, again, it's like the optimism for me is like when we talk about this work and we even using the exercise analogy, it's like, fuck, every day I got to spend hours a day doing this. Like, how am I supposed to fit this in my time? Um, I really think about moments and like two moments for me that I think about when you ask that question are uh the first was like in law school um i started working for a defense attorney who asked me to on my first day of work to go meet a guy who she showed me like the the evidence against him and it was very clear that this person had taken the life of another person had in a in a um in a drug a drug deal gone bad had shot and killed another young person of color and i remember the feeling that i got when i was like you want me to you want me to do what you want me to go like sit with this person and talk to like what um because i was i was brought up in that uh white conservative law enforcement neighborhood and and family to to a certain extent um and i walked over to the jail 
it was my job and I sat in a little tiny room and this young person came in and sat down in front of me. And the first moment that I had, I was like, oh, you're a child. He was 19 years old. And that is not, again, to remove like agency or personal responsibility for the very grave and unfortunate tragic decision that he made. And that is not to say that he should not have been uh, punished or held accountable for that. But as we sat there and he started talking to me, he didn't want to talk to me about like the case. He just wanted to talk because he was a kid and he was being deprived of human contact. And he talked about his life up until the moment that he was standing in that hotel room with a gun in somebody's face. And all of the things that happened that like there were plenty of adults around that should have been like a red flag. Like maybe we should, but instead because he was poor and brown, it was just like, da, 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 da. Um, he was a, uh, he was one of the lucky kids in our, in our community that got to go to a school outside of the county limit. Uh, we have a program that ships kids out to the suburbs to, um, you know, get them the good education. He became a football star. And in his junior year of high school, he shredded his ACL. And uh, anybody who is an athlete who's listening knows that like junior year of high school is like the one. And so this kid had his senior year to make up for that. And because of his poor health insurance and his parents um, not having a mastery of the language, uh, he found a doctor that was like, I got this magic drug for you. You will be out on the field and you will be dominating. It's called Oxycontin. And this kid started taking Oxycontin and, and I can, you know, like by your reaction, I can tell you, you know, the end of the story that football all of a sudden was no longer priority, then school, then family. And now this kid's robbing a drug dealer for what? OCs. A murder happens and now he's going to do life without parole. And, and all that we could do was spend lots of money to lock that kid up for the rest of his life, to, uh, you know, millions of dollars to lock him up for the rest of his life when if we had taken a fraction of that money and like put all the structures in the in the place for this kid not to feel the urgency that football was the only way to get his family out of this place or to get him some health care so that he would not have taken oxycontin or when he got addicted to oxycontin that somebody at his school or in his home felt the wherewithal to get him treatment for that or when he started stealing from his family and his neighbors that the only option for them wasn't to call the police and have him arrested. If we had put a fraction of that money into that, not only do we save his life and the, and the other young person's life that we, um, that we lost, but we also have 29 million and an X amount of dollars to spend on other things as well. And, and, it, and for me, it was just like, what are we doing? Um, and then the other, the other moment, now uh, this one's really quick. It was just, the first day I walked into a courthouse in the, in the middle of a major city like Boston and saw the optics of um, uh, white and, and you know, middle, upper middle class people making really important decisions about the lives of people that they had never met before and in fact had been conditioned to hate. Um, and, and that was, I remember the, everything about it, the smell, the sounds, uh, the moment, like the breath, the the breeze of the door when I opened it, I remember everything about the moment of walking to that courtroom and being like, "This is it." Well, I salute you, man. Uh, and I, when I say I salute you, I salute you because, yeah, it's it's the right thing. You did the right thing, but what it takes to do the right thing in the face of 
people who have said become comfortable with saying Shh, just 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 walk the thing you you will be okay you'll be okay if you do this don't worry about them this is about you and you know the way we've elevated the idea of what success looks like and what that track looks like and i'm sure we could do a whole another conversation just based in the amount of pushback in the amount of you having to watch your back in the amount of which you encountered all different types of setups from people who are supposed to be your friends and colleagues because you're disrupting the system and the fact that you've chosen to in, to remain in that man it's just from a, from a standard of of humanity is it that's that's just the energy that we need as a as a collective man Thank you. Thank you for seeing me, bro. Like, I'm far from perfect. Just I have my own accountability. We could also just do a, no, a whole nother conversation in all the different manners in which we have subconsciously tried to sabotage ourselves because the success or the adoration or am I doing it right uh, is too much. I could, yep. I could do 10 hours in the various ways in which I've tried to derail myself because of, being, of, of feeling like I don't even deserve to be here. And, and that I, I look forward to those conversations because I, I feel like that is something that we don't talk about at all is, is carrying that around and what that means. Like, again, not having an outlet as a young person to either choose between doing this and doing that and what that means for the rest of a person's developmental life. So I appreciate you naming that and, sh- and uh, bonding over that, you know. Well, our next conversation um we're going to go we'll go deeper about on on that part and you know because that's that's something that everybody faces every day you know yet you've you've had a storied you know career and if you if you google adam foss it's like the highlight reel is popping but what that takes you know the same you know what 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 that takes and and especially as as as, as a black man to really feel like you deserve and the manners in which you might try to kick out your own tires to just get out of the way of it. Like, I don't even know if I can do this anymore. Mm-hmm. That's some shit. I see you. Yep. I see you too, bro. And I appreciate this so much, man. I'm really, I'm looking forward to, to doing this again, for sure. Yeah. And I look forward to building, man. I'm so happy that, um, that you're out here. And when we can, let, let, listen, let's just get a distance hang popping. Yeah. Yeah, like you live at the beach, bro. Like I'm ready to come on, come come west. We'll go six six feet in the sand all day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, for 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 the people that want to engage with what you're doing, um, what manners uh, may they uh, contact you? So um, my um, all my social media uh, is at Adam John Foss. Um, uh, A-D-A-M-J-O-H-N-F-O-S-S and then my the company that I run is at Prosecutor Impact prosecutorimpact.com um, please reach out, plug in uh, we are super responsive particularly to young people that are trying to be in this pipeline, um, we need you out here um, and this is we're just um, building the movement uh, in our way so um, again, much respect and appreciation to you bro, you've been a mentor and hero of mine um, since the time I was 11 years old and um, uh, when I was able to be at my neighbor's house and, and uh, pop on cable and see 
um, this dude in this space and the way that I found myself in my life, I can't even tell you um, how many days you got me through. And so to be connected to you all these years later, um, you know, I wish I could, I could look back and tell my 11, my 11 year old self that I finally connected with, with uh, big bro Sal. So appreciate you. Wow. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's just real humbling, man. And um, like I said, dude, as soon as I met you, I knew that we were friends. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, I saw you. I saw you speak. I saw the way we were as us in that room. And the second we we spoke, I was like, okay, it's it's meant to be. We will always just pick up where we leave off, and the time aligned, and and here we are. And you will always have me by your side as an ally, support. Um, in in whatever and anything uh, that you need. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, bro. Real talk. I've honestly never been more excited for a new journey than I am this podcast. So I hope that you will join me because without y'all, I won't have a show. Follow us on the Instagram at What Shapes This Podcast. Again, on Instagram at What Shapes Us Podcast. And won't you please, won't you please, please won't you be a subscriber at What Shapes Us Podcast. Available anywhere that you enjoy premium podcasts. Thank you. That's all you can give, but ain't all that it takes. Put your money on the wall, but it won't buy taste. Surprise to catch shine when you stop to embrace. Breathe, don't wanna watch you go under. Fly, don't wanna see you burn. Please, they're gonna take your thunder. Why you wanna miss your turn? Easy, don't paint by numbers. Fortune only favors the bone. Sweat, no money, no motion. Plant these trees of coffee and gold. Vatican.